Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today we have Brad Katsuyama, CEO and co-founder of the Investors Exchange Group a fair, simple, and transparent stock exchange dedicated to investor and issuer protection. In this episode, Chad and Brad discuss how IEX is using new technologies to help investors and what they're doing to make investing and the stock exchanges at large more fair and straightforward for everyone, not just the elite. Stay tuned for more from Brad Katsuyama of IEX. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. I'm your host, Chad Grills, and today I'm joined by Brad Katsuyama. Brad, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, thank you. It's really exciting to have you here. Um, so I mentioned before we started recording that I've been following you since you showed up as a uh, character, I guess we could say, in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. And your work in finance, it spans decades now. So when people ask you, what do you do? How do you respond? Um, if I don't really want to get into it, I say I work for a stock exchange, uh, which most people have an, I, I have an idea of what a stock exchange is. Um, sure. if they start drilling a little bit deeper, I would say that our stock exchange is set up a little bit differently. We are trying to use technology to help everyday investors get the best possible execution. Whereas other stock exchanges sell, uh, speed and data advantages to help the fastest traders trade against slower ones. And the first thing I want to point to is that your new exchange, IEX, uh, you're not afraid of um, poking the bear, let's call it that, and uh, then having fun while you go. So I saw something on your website that was a spot, kind of like an advertisement for the fictitious or not so fictitious Wonder Cable. Um, could you tell, <laughs> could you tell yeah. us about the Wonder Cable and how you view kind of like having fun with things? Sure. I mean, you know, the Wonder Cable comes out of, I think, an industry-wide frustration that exchanges are given licenses by the regulator and thus are granted monopolies over the products they sell. So anyone that connects to the New York Stock Exchange or connects to NASDAQ has to pay them to, to do so. And what they've done is they've sold different versions of cables to connect, different versions of market data. If you want 
faster connectivity, you can pay for that. If you want more data, you can pay for that. The prices they charge are ridiculous. Uh, the Wonder Cable was this notion that IEX itself rents cables for $20,000 a month, where the cable itself wholesale probably costs about $200 one time. This is a recurring charge. Some people pay a lot more than that. Some people have dozens of cables. So it's just, I, I think, a little bit of a, uh, of a joke, but it's not a joke because it's true. And it allows the exchanges to build up these massive war chests that they can then deploy in Washington, D.C. from a lobbying perspective that they can pay out in the form of, of rebates to, uh, for people to send them orders, whereas IEX provides all of our data and connectivity for free, and we charge people to trade. So I think a lot of people don't really know how the stock exchanges operate or how they truly make money. So this was a way kind of to make light of, of something that is actually serious. Also to align ourselves with, with the industry, because this is a pain point that a lot of people in this industry have, that exchanges just are basically overcharging people for very basic utility services. And this is an important point. So a lot of people who are listening are going to be uh, there's definitely some accredited investors, some VCs, some uh, institutional investors. And then we have the far majority of listeners who are retail investors. So for retail investors, I want to help set the stage here. You recently gave a talk at PRI or a PRI conference where you share the story about talking with Michael Lewis. And when Michael Lewis had his book, it first came out and he basically came out and said that the U.S. stock market is rigged. And you had a story where you basically followed up and said, you know, Michael, why did you say that? Can you share <laughs> the question that Michael followed that up with and yeah. asked you? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I had said it plenty of times in private when, when people would say, man, it, you know, you, you explained it the way, the, the way that the playing field is tilted and they would say, wow, that sounds like the market's rigged. And you know, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a <laughs> system that is, that is, that is, that is, that is tilted. And so I remember when I was interviewing for 60 minutes, uh, Steve Croft kept kind of changing the question, be saying, man, that sounds like the stock market's rigged. And I'd be like, well, it's a little bit you know, more complicated <laughs> than that because it's such a loaded word. Rigged is just, it, you know, really it, is. it has a lot of different connotations. And so I did not want to say it on 60 minutes, uh, not because I don't believe it to be true, just because it's a, it's a loaded word. And at its core, at the detailed level, we know we're right. So when you try to generalize with a word, it kind of it kind of takes away maybe from from I think you know the details because you could just say the stock market's not rigged, but that doesn't answer any of the questions that we've we've posed. It doesn't right. answer for any of the things that the SEC or the attorney generals have found since Flash Boys. But you know, is it rigged or is it not rigged? That's that doesn't answer anything. So Michael Lewis says it in kind of like the byline of 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 sixty minutes, and I called him and I said, Michael, like why did you say that? And he said, Well. Let me ask you a question. He goes, is the system designed in a way that is institutionally unfair to the everyday investor? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, what would you call it then? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think, I think in many ways he chose the word that best described it from his perspective. And right. I think for us, you could say and believe the stock market is not rigged, but that is not where this discussion needs to end. It needs to go right. a lot deeper than that. And we wanted to take this as deep as it could possibly go, which is why we didn't want to say it on 60 Minutes. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're willing to engage in that type of public conversation because this is a subject that we need to have thousands of discussions about. And one of the things I like about your work is that you've now testified in front of Congress, I believe twice, and you're really trying to get this information in the, the hands of regulators, in the hands of the public. Why do you care so much and why did you testify in front of Congress? So, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've done it twice. We did it in 2014, uh, right after the book came out. There was a Senate Finance Committee that asked me to testify and I did it in 2016, I believe, in front of a congressional subcommittee. You know, I think for us, it, it's important because the truth matters. And going down in forums and on stages like that, what you find is that there's a lot of people who just don't want to lie and give very confusing and long and kind of obfuscated answers. And we just wanted to tell the truth. And I think that's the stage where we shine the brightest. And, and even in preparation for, for these, you know, these events, you know, we focus on, and I make one rule for myself, because people ask, oh, do you get nervous? Or, you know, are you concerned? And, and I say, no, I, I, I actually don't get nervous. I have one rule. Only talk about things that I know personally to be true. 
So if someone hmm. told me something, I'm not going to repeat that in a testimony, but things that I've experienced, things that I know to be true, I'm going to talk about those things. And because I know them to be true, it makes it actually very easy. I want people to understand. I think one of the interesting things about the other stock exchanges is they don't want anyone to understand. They, they want to be left alone. They don't want scrutiny. They don't want the media asking questions. Um, because once you start asking questions, the answers are not things that that I think stand you know, up to, to the smell test. We like those stages. We like those forums because it's an opportunity to tell the truth next mm-hmm. to people who are just trying not to lie. I remember one uh, reporter came up to me after the 2014 testimony and he said, you're the only one up there that was speaking English. And I said, wow. you know what? Because I, I want you to understand me. Like, I, I really want you to, to know what we know. And I think the more people that know what we know, the better this system works for the everyday person. Have you found any champions on Capitol Hill that you're uh, you're able to talk about or have there been any congressmen or senators that have been really helpful in this or supportive of your efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know what you find is that there, there are people who are independently curious about what the issues are and then care to dive into the details. So someone like Senator Mark Warner is someone who, you know, he was a, a business executive himself. And just out of curiosity, wanted to dive really deep. And I think those who are willing to dive deep get an appreciation for what's really at stake and, and truly why the system needs to be fixed. So if you look back, you know, he's written, you know, a lot of comment letters. He's, he's written letters to the SEC. He, among a number of others, at, at one point, a former senator, Ted Kaufman, uh, I've been on committees with him. I believe he, he was a physicist, I think, by, by background. But, oh, wow. you know, people that really want to dive deep end up becoming more engaged in what we're trying to do because it is a complicated subject, but it's one with a very obvious conclusion. Definitely. And speaking of diving deep, I would love to go back into your personal story because I think what was most interesting, so a lot of people know you previously had different, many different jobs at the Royal Bank of Canada. But what I think was one of the things that's really interesting about your career there is that you had, I believe, around seven jobs in 12 years. And I think that the idea of entrepreneurs is something that's not really celebrated and talked about enough. Um, So I would love to hear how you got started at RBC and how you approached your career there. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so RBC, I was an intern there twice while I was going to to school uh, before signing on full time. And really I got, I got the job through my stepfather played hockey with someone that knew about an opening. And I ended up, my first job there was taking paper records and turning them into digital records. So it was not a glamorous job uh, <laughs> at all. It was pretty, it's pretty treacherous. But RBC was a place that had had great kind of internship programs. They, they brought speakers in a lot and you got to kind of see different parts of the bank. And, and just by accident, I ended up meeting someone who was running the uh, equity sales desk in Toronto and through him ended up getting an internship on the trading desk in Toronto. I think, you know, my, my career started in Toronto. I moved to the to New York in 2002 when they uh, had bought a bank from the Midwest and moved their trading operation to New York. And essentially, we're looking for people to, to help start that desk. And at the time, RBC was ranked number one in Canada, uh, I think still is, and we were ranked 23rd in the United States. So for mm-hmm. me, it was a no-brainer. As a young person, kind of nothing to lose. I was like, you know, the second I got offered that opportunity, I was I had my bags packed. I was ready to go. So part of it is is being willing to challenge yourself in ways that are not comfortable. I think wanting to push kind of your personal or intellectual boundaries is is important to growth. It was I think some people might may have been reluctant, you know, to leave a good situation in Toronto and and for me it was just I saw the opportunity and I said, you know, what, worst thing worst thing that can happen. I always think of what's the pro and con? The sure. con is that I move back to Toronto and just pick up my life where it was. Everything's kind of in, in the same relative place. I can get a job somewhere else. But the pro is my life could change. Uh, I'd never been to New York before I visited it prior to moving down here. So when I saw New York, it just felt like the world was a lot bigger than the world I grew up in uh, in Toronto. I think the different jobs I had, I mean, I had an amazing boss there. I worked for the same person, uh, Bobby Grubert, for 10 years, who now runs Global Equity there, who basically, when he saw an opportunity, he threw me at it. Whether I had experience in that or not, when he saw something that needed to be fixed, he threw me at it. So partly, I think it was a willingness to just get my hands dirty and and solve problems. And two, it was about a level of trust that I built with my boss that if there was something that was on his plate that needed to be fixed, that I was someone that would do that. 
The other interesting part, and again, it's all about risk reward. And you know, once you you know get to a certain level in a company or in your career, you realize that there are there are very few obvious decisions. Uh, decisions just get more complicated, and so you have to weigh the pros and cons of anything that you do. And so I knew that every time RBC was offering me a job, they were taking a chance on me because I would have no experience in this prior thing. So mm-hmm. I wanted to de-risk that for RBC. So most people would say, oh, you want me to trade tech? Well, I, you know, at the time I traded energy, they wanted me to trade technology stocks. Well, I'm doing a great thing. I have a great clients. I've made this much you know, in business. So well, how much money are you going to pay me to take this technology job? That I think is the standard approach to people try to use a change in job to negotiate your financial situation. I never had a guarantee in my entire career on Wall Street. Part of that was that I never wanted to ask RBC for the guarantee because that makes it riskier mm-hmm. for them to offer me the next job, right? Because I haven't right. proven myself. I don't know anything about technology stocks. It's So every time I got offered a job, I made the assessment and I wanted to make it as, I wanted to, to de-risk it as much for right. RBC as I could. So I just say, if I wanted the job, I'll take it. Some, I actually got asked once, well, what do you want? The first time I'm like, I don't want anything. Just, you want to do it? Let's do it. Do you view that as uh, something analogous to being willing to offer a personal guarantee if you take on a loan or a business loan? Because I view that as uh, a fascinating philosophy of de-risking things for your employer, because you're definitely going to be one of the few people on the team who is thinking that conscientiously about their capital. How do you view that? Do you, do you view that as something similar as like a personal guarantee or... Like, so you're talking about a, an individual taking a loan from their company? Basically offering to lead a new initiative or take a new job. If you have a mindset that says, I realize that this is a risky for my employer and I want to de-risk it, um, that's really going to stand out in a world where everyone's asking for more money. You can, I yeah. think anyone can really stand out by saying, I respect the capital that you're already willing to risk on this. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, so exactly. So if I went in and said, I want to be guaranteed X dollars, right. um, 50, 50% more than what I'm getting paid now. Cause I'm taking risk and I have a great franchise and you're asking me to go do this other thing that I don't have a lot of uh, faith in the price they put on that. Now they, they turn around and say, okay, well, can I hire someone for 50% more than what Brad makes who has experience to fill that job? So I've changed the calculus in their mind of right. taking the risk on me. Just saying yes and not asking for that guarantee makes it very, very like, you know, the risk from their side drops considerably because they're like, you know what? If Brad doesn't, if it doesn't work, we'll pay him less than he's making now. Sure. If it works, maybe he earns more. And so I think it was a matter of saying, I think I can do this job and I want more jobs in the future. So any new job that popped up, I was the lowest risk person to offer that job to. Because mm-hmm. I had no experience in that job. They knew I wasn't going to ask for a guarantee. So it's like, hey, here's something else that you can do. Go do it. And, and it turns out that when I got asked to run global electronic sales and trading, which is essentially the springboard for IEX, it's about getting in the weeds, managing the technology and the developers. I knew nothing about electronic trading. I literally mm-hmm. knew nothing. I had no experience in it. I was running a risk trading desk. I, I understood how to how to trade large blocks of stock, not not how to you know build help build algorithms to cut big blocks of stock into tiny pieces, but I had done it so many times in the past. They said this is the job for you, and actually at first I said I don't know if I want this job, and my boss kept coming back saying this is the right job for you. You can do it. You can do it. And again, no guarantees were exchanged. I just you know I I went out. I talked to a bunch of clients. I realized that there was this problem in the market with the relationship between exchanges and certain high-speed traders. And that was the reason I took the job. I took a huge risk taking that job. IX would not be a company if I didn't actually take that risk. And so I think if you're thinking long-term about your career development and you want to put yourself in the best position to get offered opportunities, make it you know the lowest risk possible for your company to do that. So my best advice on entrepreneurship is think about the company first and if you do that, the company will be thinking about you as a uh, as an asset that can be deployed in a low risk way into novel problems or unique opportunities. And that that's essentially why I had so many jobs at RBC. While you were at RBC, I believe that there were uh, there was at least one study where it was found that around 200 SEC staffers since 2007 had left their government jobs to work for high frequency trading firms 
or firms that lobbied Washington. So in your mind, <laughs> right. when you came across that study, what happened? Do you, do you still remember it? And how did your mindset shift at that point? So yeah, I, I remember a few people had, had assembled and went through this list and compiled it. And what, what you realize is that essentially the system itself and any documentary that you watch on, you know, the, the Food and Drug Administration or like it's like the punchline is always, well, how did that get approved? Well, you know, guess what? The revolving door. And I think partly I think you realize that it's, it's going to be a pretty big battle. And so you realize that the system is set up in a way that that has actually made this possible and that a very small number of people are benefiting from that. I think the other aspect of that to me is that, well, what's the alternative to going to work in the industry that you're regulating because you have you have experience. Well, how are you going to deploy that? And part of the reason of starting IEX was this idea that we could be a company that exists in Wall Street that gives people an alternative use of their knowledge. And, and, and in many ways, we've aligned closely with some of the big brokers and, and some of the big asset managers where I think we've changed their mindset on how to operate in the in this environment. So like we're most proud of, I think, of the influence that we've had on others. And so we've hired people here from the SEC. And so, you know, you could view that as part of, we're part of the revolving door, or we can just say we're taking highly skilled, experienced people and we're just deploying them in a different way. Showing that there's a, a, a different way on Wall Street for exchanges was really kind of what we set out to do. Not every exchange has to look like New York or NASDAQ, nor do, nor do investors want more exchanges that look like New York or NASDAQ. And that type of revolving door, I feel like is a, uh, it's a pretty healthy thing as long as there's knowledge sharing going on and the information about who leaves and when they leave and what type of compensation they get at both places is publicly available. I feel like that's not, it's not really a bad thing. Do you view it as a healthy thing or as something that is okay, but we just want to keep our eye on and the public needs to be involved in this debate? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's definitely something to think about, you know, what kind of restrictions that you put around it and, and how, you know, again, it's, I, you know, there's policies around, you know, can you go back and represent your company to the SEC for how, how long? I think from our standpoint, one of the big, one of the biggest things that we've pushed is this idea of transparency. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that you just suggested from a transparency standpoint, these are not unreasonable requests to give people a better understanding of how the private and the public sector, uh, what those relationships look like. So, you know, right. we, we try to push the envelope on transparency. It's, it's a lack of transparency ends up becoming where a lot of the loopholes exist. And I think that's true for our industry, but I'm, I'm sure it's true for almost anything out there. So this is a quote from uh, Michael Lewis in the book Flash Boys, but he says, what people saw when they looked at the U.S. stock market, the numbers on the screens of the professional traders, the ticker tape running across the bottom of the CNBC screen, was an illusion. So when he's talking about that there, he's basically alluding to the fact that there are many different prices that are happening or being shown to different people at about the same time. Is that a good way of summing that up? Or or how do you describe this phenomena to people who aren't familiar with it? I, I would say it's kind of like a horse race where certain people are betting on that horse race and they know the race has ended. And they're betting against people who still think the race is happening. That's really when the price of a stock changes and some people know that it's just tick lower and other people don't, it lets people trade essentially at a stale price that should no longer exist. Right. So if I know a stock has just gone from 10 to nine and I want to sell to you at 10 and you still think it's trading at 10, but I know it's trading at nine, that's not really a a playing field. It's like, I know this horse has won and you're willing to make a bet that a different horse is going to win the race, I already know the result. <laughs> sure. So what the stock exchanges have done essentially is that they've sold different feeds of the same race. Different People are watching different versions of the same horse race. So I think, you know, in a way, what Michael Lewis is describing is the idea that there is not one version of the stock market. There's probably hundreds of versions of the stock market based on what technology you buy, how fast your connections are, how fast your computers are, et cetera. So you have this, this market that is supposed to represent uh, a meeting place for all of these different investors of different sophistication of technologies, et cetera. Yet there are thousands of versions of the market running and people with a faster version can trade profitably against people with a slower version. So the way that we kind of ended that in a way on IEX, at least, 
is we built a speed bump that's 350 millionths of a second. And the best way to actually simulate a speed bump is to coil physical cable. Physically, hmm. proximity propagation delay is, is, is the biggest component of latency now because we've ground things down to such a, a low level. So we coiled 38 and a half miles of cable in a box and we stuck that in between anyone who connects to IEX and all the information also that comes out of IEX goes over the speed bump. And what that means is that you might know the horse race is over, but when you look to place a bet on IEX, it has to go through the speed bump. And by the time it gets through the speed bump, we know that the horse race is over too. So we won't let that bet take place between someone who knows something and someone who doesn't. It's similar to like, think of like roulette when, when the, the roulette, uh, I don't know what they're called, the dealer or whatever they're called, sure. says no more, no more bets. It's because they don't want people timing where the ball is, what quadrant it's in, how it's going to fall. It's just our speed bump is a way to let everyone's view of the market catch up, including IEX's view of the market. So if we know a stock's hmm. just gone from 10 to 9 and someone's coming in to try to sell at 10, by the time the order gets to the speed bump, we say, you know, no, no, only trades can happen at 9 because we know that the market has just changed. That's the point of a speed bump. It is one one thousandth the speed of blinking your eye. That's right. how long our speed bump is. So this is really about saying you're on the West Coast, you send that order all the way out to New York, New Jersey. We get it. But once we're in possession of it, IEX is responsible for ensuring that you get a fair price. And we do that through the speed bump and other, we've built essentially a machine learning system that can, uh, predict price changes that we also use that technology to ensure again just that trades are happening at the fairest possible price so all of this is in an effort to create fairness uh, in right. a market where people make billions from the lack of fairness so it is <laughs> it's a bit of an uphill battle but you know we're, right. we're doing okay and so this is uh paraphrasing a quote from you but i believe you said that 50 to 60% of the market volume is being executed by computer programs who have no idea what companies do and I think that it's dangerous. So what you're saying is basically that IEX helps protect your investors or the firms that go through you, uh, and they don't have to deal with this 60% of algorithmic trading that's going on right now. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, not all algorithmic computer trading is bad. There's arbitrage between an ETF and the 30 underlying companies that make up that ETF. Or uh, BlackBerry is listed in Toronto, it's listed in the United States, and you can arbitrage that. So uh, not all computerized trading is, is bad. But what I would say is that when you have the majority of the market trading a particular company's stock, and none of the models trading that company know what the company actually does, that's how you really get huge distortions in the prices of these companies. No one ever thought Accenture was worth one penny or no one ever thought this one stock was worth $10,000. It's like when you see these mass scale flash crashes or, or, or these, these volatile moments, the scary part about it ends up becoming that the people that are doing the majority of buying, of buying or selling don't know what that company actually does. And I think that uh, it's scary for fundamental investors, certainly. And it's scary for companies. We've talked to a lot of companies that experience just completely unnecessary volatility and, you know, it's the same company it was tomorrow as it is today, but tomorrow they could be down 7%, getting call, calls from all sorts of investors and have no idea why. And by the time those calls are done, the, the stock could be down 1%. Um, right. So, so I think it just ends up, it's the unnecessary volatility that I think is, is the big problem. Markets will be volatile, but I think unnecessary volatility has been created by exchanges selling hundreds to thousands of different versions of the stock market, which incentivizes this arbitrage just purely based on speed that generates a lot of volume. So the exchanges are excited about that. They pay a lot of money for the technology and the, and the data, but is it good for the fundamentals of the market? Is it good for investors and companies? It's not. So when you describe IEX to a potential client or a CEO of another company, how do you pitch it and how do you present it? And is there like an elevator pitch or something a little bit longer you can share with us? I think where we've had a lot of success, and so we just got approval at the end of last year to, to list companies and listed interactive brokers. So it's a $25 billion financial company where the CEO, founder of that company, knows electronic trading as, as well or better than any CEO of any public company. <laughs> he understands markets. Thomas Petterfee 
Milan Galak, who's his president, understands markets. And, and they made this decision, and I think, to switch to IEX. So one of the benefits is that the shareholders in your company end up trading more on IEX, which ultimately helps them. So the alignment with the people investing in those companies is really, really important. We went from being 3% of interactive brokers volume to 30%. The quote size, the bid and offer quotes has grown by 40% on average since Hmm. moving to IEX. The quote is also nearly twice as stable, which means it's not jittering around, it's not flickering, but the spread has widened, meaning this artificially narrow spread of people trying to bid an offer and kind of jitter it, that doesn't exist. So a thicker, more stable quote to us is a better indication of a healthy market. So the pitch to companies is more real liquidity, more aligned with your investors, and and frankly, more stable trading fundamentals. I think that's we, we're not saying, oh, we're going to put your, you know, your your billboard on a on a bus and drive it around New York. We're not going to jump out of airplanes and, you know, write things in the sky like our Nasdaq. This is better for your shareholders. You know, from our standpoint, that's the most meaningful reason to pick a listing exchange. What's good for your company and what's good for your shareholders? And do you still have the lowest effective spread of any exchanges or? Yeah, Where's absolutely. Yeah, we we I mean there was a measurement called effective spread that's are you buying for cheaper than what's offered or are you selling for more than what's bid for? Getting better prices. It existed before IEX was an exchange and exchanges used to put it on their website. Right when IEX came out as an exchange, we catapulted. We're number 1 in over 490 of the S&P 500 companies. So now the only exchange to have effective spread on their website is IEX because all the other ones have taken it <laughs> off. But it's, are you, are you getting better prices? And the answer that, to that is yes. Now, the biggest hurdle we have, because now it sounds, you know, anyone's listening and saying, well, why in the world are, are you not growing? Why are you not the largest market out there? We right. use technology to protect investors. We're delivering better prices. We're de- delivering fairer prices. Is because New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and the CBOE who own BATS, between those three exchange companies, they're paying... The industry, $2.8 billion a year for brokers to send them order flow. Wow. And when, when a pension fund order gets routed through a broker to the New York Stock Exchange, the broker keeps the rebate is what it's called. Some people call it a kickback. So the reason that IX isn't bigger is that we're not paying people to send orders to us. The reason those exchanges pay people to send orders is because it's such a bad place to execute trades. It's so toxic. Wow. So you're paying people to overlook the fact that you're getting steamrolled by people who have bought an advantage. So now, again, smartly, the SEC has announced a pilot, has approved a pilot to test the elimination of these rebates or kickbacks. What does the stock market look like without this payment? And now, not surprisingly, the three big exchanges are suing the SEC to stop this test from even happening. So we are in the middle of a uh, of a of a, a, a pretty big fight. The end result is a a fairer market for the end investor, and so you know we feel really confident in our position. But our opponents are well capitalized, and they make a lot of money, you know, selling advantages to 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 certain participants. So as as a result, like we're fighting the system for the everyday investor, and most everyday investors don't even know that there's a fight happening. So that ends up becoming one of our challenges. Brad, what's your take on the SEC right now? Because I know you recently wrote an open letter to Mr. Brent Fields. Uh, It was called How Stock Exchanges Abuse Their Privilege and Power for Monopolistic Profits. I'm really curious if you could share any maybe public interactions or responses to that letter. And yeah, where's the debate? Where's the dialogue at right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the dialogue's never been in a better place. I mean, I look at the SEC and I look at the last, you know, three or four things that they've done. This is an SEC that wants to protect the investors and wants to protect the public. IEX, along with a a large group of investors, have given them a number of things to focus on. In the past, I think the SEC really wasn't hearing a lot from investors. The exchanges only had one voice. There wasn't, you know, an IEX type exchange that was trying to provide a counter voice. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, the SEC was making decisions based on the information they were presented with. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of about IEX is that we have provided a sophisticated counter narrative to the exchanges and all of the nonsense that they've spewed the last decade. And as a result, we've we've engaged with investors, we've educated pension funds, and we've gotten the people who this market was intended to serve to be vocal so how did that how did that pilot 
on the elimination of rebates come to fruition, you had over $10 trillion in assets under management. Comment to the SEC that this pilot should happen. It's a huge conflict of interest and investors suffer in this in this regime of, of exchanges paying for order flow. Without the investor voice, I don't think the SEC has the grounds to advance their agenda. And so I, what I think IEX has done is we've aligned the SEC with investors because in, in reality, the SEC's mission is to protect those investors. And we've aligned them by bringing up our, or rallying the investors and also providing transparency as to what an exchange should actually do. So another part of, of what we've done is to say, just because NASDAQ, New York, uh, Stock Exchange, and the CBOE operate like this, that is not how all exchanges have to operate. And in many ways, in that letter that we wrote to the SEC, we think the exchanges have completely abused their position in the market. They are regulated entities. They are regulators themselves. Most people view them as almost like government utilities, mm-hmm. but they are for-profit companies that have essentially charged 4,000% markups for basic products and are using those profits to basically create an unlevel playing field. And For products um, that you can't get anywhere else, correct? Absolutely. Yes. You can only buy New York Stock Exchange data from the New York Stock Exchange. You can only buy the quality of data that you need to actually trade. There's no faster way to trade than to be in New York Stock Exchange's data centers where you have to buy whatever cables that they're going to sell you. So it's, uh, yeah, you have no other choice. So it's a it's a business with no competition that's, you know, has in excess 4,000% plus margins. So that is not the hallmark of a of a competitive and thriving business. It's a monopoly business. And with the recent events with uh, Elon Musk calling the SEC the Short Sellers Enrichment Commission and some of his misadventures there, do you have any commentary? Do you have any thoughts on it? And is this going to help us get some reform in the system or is this a distraction? I mean, I think from from our standpoint, I don't know if I have any particular opinions, but it's definitely, I see kind of two worlds colliding. We kind of live in, in these worlds except because we're a stock exchange, we knew we were going to be a stock exchange. There were certain policies and procedures that we needed to have in order to conform to the system. In in many ways, you know, Elon Musk challenges the system and pushes it to, to the boundary and lets people see maybe there are certain parts of the system that are too rigid. But I certainly, at the same time, I, I, I appreciate where the SEC is coming from because of the rigidity of some of these rules right. um, that are in place. And in many ways, you know, regulation doesn't help the little person, regulation kind of creates a box that certain people know how to operate in and, and certain people don't. So I think this clash will only continue to happen. And I think the re-examination of the regulation we have, if that's the result, that's probably a good thing overall. I would love to hear some about your future thoughts for the industry. Do you see a future where companies can, if IEX is, continues to be successful and grow, do you see a future for public companies, CEOs or directors or executives where they have more time to focus on building the business and less time on regulatory and compliance? Or what's your version of the future uh, if IEX succeeds? What's that look like? You know, right now what you have is you have, you know, New York and NASDAQ are the representatives of these companies in DC. In many ways, us wanting to be a listing exchange is to give these companies a different option an option that that at times is more aligned with their investors, but also, an, you know, an option that I think has a, a different perspective on on the future of markets. I mean, for us, it's it's a more transparent market. It's fairer. There are less advantages to be sold. And again, it's it's really, it comes down, you brought this point up earlier, the more transparent the market is, the, the simpler it is, the better it is for everyone. What you want to do is you want to close up any of the loopholes that, that exist. And what that does, a simpler market, I think, ends up becoming less volatile by nature. Mm-hmm. It lets investors focus back on fundamentals because again, investors also are can act irrationally during periods of volatility. You know, what I see is the trickle effect. It was funny, I was at this conference, an FCLT conference, focusing capital on the long-term. And what I saw was I saw companies wanting to focus on more of their long-term plans and kind of pointing at the investors and saying, man, you guys evaluate us every quarter and that's, that's unfair some of the investors say, well, listen, like, you know, again, the, the asset owners evaluate us on a quarterly basis. So that's kind of why we focus on the quarter. And I'm sitting here and I'm saying, man, we're trying to solve problems in, in milliseconds where people are in and out of stocks, you know, so fast. So on the right. trading level, it is, we're talking about milliseconds. 
on the corporate level, they're complaining about quarters and the, and the companies want to talk about years. And I think trying to align people around a, a market that is, that is more fundamentally driven ultimately helps all the actors in that ecosystem, except for the exchanges, because that probably means slightly less trading, and except for the people that are buying some of these advantages and trading you know, in those timeframes that people don't even know exists. I, I think it's a scary market, I think, for a company when you realize that the majority of your volume is traded by people who don't know your company. You know, every company has a story. Every company has, has a vision for growth. Every company has, has a plan. And a lot of those plans are spelled out as long-term objectives and the hyper-focus on the short-term, which is fueled by the way the exchanges have set up their businesses is part of the biggest challenge that needs to be solved. But I do think aligning more with investors definitely takes the focus off of short-term high-speed trading and puts it back more in terms of, you know, in, in, in the camp of long-term investing. And, and the SEC, I think, is listening to those investors. So this is a time for, for change. And hopefully we provide a, a good choice for companies to make, aligning with the things that we believe in, less about, you know, what the exchanges have currently built. And with the recent wave of tech company IPOs, whether it's Spotify, Lyft, or all the companies getting ready to IPO, what have you seen or what's your team seen? Has there been inbound interest or do you feel like you're going to need to basically like is interest going to start catalyzing after these companies are public for a year and start experiencing many new frustrations? What's your your view on this here? I mean, for us, I, I've, I've run trading at a bank, so I've, I've been a part of these taking companies public process it's a really stressful process and there's a very, very long checklist of which where you list is one box on the long checklist. And I think for us, it's a much more viable path to get companies to switch who are already public, who are looking to, to switch their exchange and building up a roster of, of switch clients before we look to tackle IPOs. Um, also, gotcha. there was a, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal talking about the levels that exchanges are going to to try to woo IPOs, you know, one one package was like a ten million dollar marketing package. I mean, it the insanity and the lengths to which the exchanges are going to to compete in IPOs. For us, the risk uh, of doing something that has not been done, i.e., IPOing on IX, is different than a company deciding to switch because switch a switch has been done. You know, it's proven itself to be a value to the company that switched. So our focus right now is on switches down the line on IPOs. But what I love is that I love a lot of these founder-led companies that have that have values that are that deeply believe in their missions. I think that aligns really nicely with what we're trying to build on IEX. So we we have had inbound interest. It's just what we're doing is we're we're directing companies to say, you know what, when you're public for a year or two, that's probably a better conversation because our focus right now is on switches. And you've also said that I think I'd still be working at a bank if the exchanges were working how they should. Clearly, this is something, this is a mission for you. This is something that you really, really care about. Can you talk to us about why you care so much again? And maybe I would love to hear your your takes on why other people need to care. If people are listening to this and saying like, this really doesn't impact me or this doesn't impact my children's future, it's not that important. Um, what would you say to them? What a lot of people don't quite focus on is that whether you're entering trades yourself through a personal trading account every day or not, your money is being traded every single day. If you have a retirement, if you have a 401k, if you have a pension, your money is being traded in this market every day. So you are a trader, whether you know it or not. You know, the funds with which you do that trading, you want them to um, maximize, you know, the value of their investments. And right now what you have is you have a system that essentially has a leak. It's like a pipe with a leak in it that is a multi-billion dollar industry that doesn't need to exist. Part of this was that there will always be people looking to game the system. There will always be people looking to kind of get an advantage in the system. And I'm not, in many ways, I view high-speed traders as capitalists who look at a system. It's kind of like if the slot machine is broken, how many people like run to the casino operator and say, hey, this thing just keeps paying me or do you just sit there and you know <laughs> take all the money? I'm not sure. Um, I think where I got the most offended was when I figured out the role the stock exchanges played in this system. These institutions that are held on this pedestal and are placed on this pedestal and are viewed as these nonprofit utilities helping form capitalism 
when you learn about what they're really doing, that I think is what really set set me off. Your expectation that they are holding a standard and protecting the investing public when in reality, they're just exploiting them. For me, that was kind of a, again, I, I've encountered many things where I've said, oh, that doesn't make sense and just kind of moved on with my life. I think this sure. is one where I, I just sat at the heart of this issue and you realize that there's a better way to be a stock exchange. There's a, there's a higher standard that stock exchanges should be held to. And the only way to do that, it became apparent to us, was to build our own stock exchange. As crazy as that sound, it sounded a lot less crazy seven years ago than, than I think it is now. And if I had known how hard it was going to be, I am unsure whether we would have, you know, we got, we've gotten very lucky along the way. And so it's, it's been a much harder battle than I could have ever imagined. But the reason we started IEX was because of how badly we thought the existing exchanges were performing in this, in this system. So Brad, final two questions here. What is most exciting for you about the uh, emerging private markets, venture capital? I, I feel like those markets are just now starting to get exciting. They've now passed investment milestones that are similar to the uh, you know, dot-com boom. And I don't think that there's going to be any sign of them slowing. What's most exciting about these markets for you? And how do you think about taking on investors yourself? You know, for, so for us, we, we've been lucky where uh, we haven't raised primary capital since 2014. So we've been profitable since 2015. You know, so we've been in we've been in pretty good shape on on that front. I, I love the optimism of entrepreneurs and of new companies, and um, we hear from them often. One of the benefits of Flash Boys is that people that are looking to take on systems sometimes will will come in and, and ask questions and pitch us, you know, what they're trying to do. We try to offer as much help as we can, but there's a huge amount of optimism, I think, around what's possible and what systems can be challenged and how we can do things better. So I love the direction of of the private markets. I think that right now you have a huge gap between the private and the public markets. Um, It is such a huge jump from having complete control of your cap table to no control of your cap table. It's, It's a huge jump from having, you know, quarterly valuations to millisecond level trading in, in your stock. So I think people need to think long and hard, including us, about how do you bridge that gap between the private markets and the public markets? But the amount of money flowing into private companies and the number of private companies and the valuations of these private companies, I mean, part of it is there are some great ideas out there. Part of it is going to be maybe a bit euphoric. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I love I love the optimism of entrepreneurs because it, it it definitely makes you think things are possible. And it definitely, I think, gives me confidence that 10 years from now, the world will look a lot different than uh, than where we are now in, in likely a better way. I'm just going to go ahead and trash the question I was going to ask you and just focus on that. So what are some possibilities of what the world could look like 10 years in the future if we create a more fair market or if the, you know, if IEX reaches scale? Are there a couple examples of maybe trickle-down effects or things that you see IEX helping catalyze? What I've really appreciated from a number of the people that approach us is that, you know, one of the challenges with Wall Street in general is that it's an institutional, it's institutional finance. We don't face end consumers. So our customers are, you know, our, our, our largest customer is Goldman Sachs. Second is JP Morgan. Like the, like, so we face institutions and a lot of people come in and say, I'm going to be the IEX of, fixed income, or I'm going to be the IEX of this. And and so I think what we've done is we've shown that disruption can happen within an institutional framework, because a lot of the disruption in finance has been consumer finance. So I, I you know, I definitely like setting the, the trend in a way of people looking to take institutional knowledge and getting large players to think differently about how they do business. The fact that Goldman Sachs is our largest client is something I'm very proud of because we've written the rules of our market. Goldman trades by the same rules as anybody else. But we've gotten Goldman to understand the value of what we're doing. And as a result, we have influenced or changed the way that they think about their relationship with an exchange and their relationship with their customers. That, to me, is, is something that we're incredibly proud of because players like Goldman Sachs are, are essential to the functioning of Wall Street. So rather than saying, I'm going to eliminate the brokers, the question is, how can I make the brokers operate in a way that aligns closely with their customers? You know, we only have brokers as members because regulation says so. 
so how do I how do I fix the system from inside the system with knowledge of how the system works? And I think a fairer market works for everyone without them even knowing it. We don't need everyone to be an expert in market structure. We need people to vote with their feet when they have the opportunity, whether it's a company or whether it's a broker, or whether it's an investor. This is a market that should work without people actually having to understand how, just knowing that the people in charge of it have their best interests in mind so they can continue to go on and do what, do what they do. Uh, and ultimately, people have more money in their retirements or pensions or 401ks at the, at the end of that, money that they never knew they were missing in the first place, but money that should be there anyways. I love it. And Brad, where can people learn more about you, IEX? And if people are so inclined, or I know your team's growing, uh, where can they learn more about that? Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, our website's ixtrading.com. Uh, there are job postings up there. Yeah, we are growing. You know, we, we've graduated out of, you know, we're shedding our startup mentality and, and we're, we're in growth phase now. We're in exchange. We're approved. We've we've fought for our life and we've survived. And and now there's kind of nothing but opportunity in front of us. So we are definitely looking for for great people. And, you know, there's a lot of information on, on the site, but it's it's yeah, we're, we're, we're excited about the future for sure. Awesome. Yeah, we're, we're so excited about your mission. We're following it closely. And for everyone listening, uh, if you're if you're talented, if you like Brad, if you like his message, if you like what they're working on, go check them out and uh, see if you can help out. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, we'll have to have you back for round two. This is fun. Absolutely. Thanks. Appreciate it. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.